No, you drinking? Wait, you... <laughs> this is the sound of the time I'm wasting. Yeah. Whenever I play video games. Through the sands of time. These are the days of our lives. I really hope this is picking up. It's probably not. <sighs> This is Cody Daigle-Oriens. This is Neil Daigle-Oriens. And welcome to another episode of Bearded Fruit. Yay. As pro- we like we're back we only we're back after a week. That's a new Whoa. <laughs> Watch out, mom. I know. Hold on. Um this is a first uh post Thanksgiving episode. So happy Thanksgiving. We hope you had a wonderful weekend. Uh, which we did. We had people over for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bunch of it was a friendsgiving. Basically, mm-hmm. I'm surprised you're not stealing the thanks living joke again. Oh, I then let me go ahead and do that. Yes, it was really great in here with so many fun people. We were thanks living. Yeah, you know who isn't thanks living right now? Florence Henderson. Whoa, Fidel Castro. Too soon, Ron Glass. Oh, Ron Glass. Yeah, that's too. That's too. <laughs> yes, but no, we had a really wonderful Thanksgiving, and we hope you did too. Um, and uh, we're now back podcasting. Um, so this week we're going to talk a bit about identity politics because it seems that post-election there's been a lot of armchair quarterbacking about uh, why Hillary Clinton. Did you have a moment there with that? Armchair quarterbacking. Did yeah, you've you never heard that. No, did you write that down in your little notes? Did you? Put it a, is in my notes because it's a good Did you put phrase. a bullet point next to it? Did you bold it? Did you italicize no, it? No, that's did you just underline what, it. It's just what they call it: armchair quarterbacking. Whenever you're, yeah, never no. I mean, I've heard of like armchair analyzing and armchair other verbing, but just quarterbacking. That's yeah. Just... So there's been a lot of that about why Hillary Clinton has lost the election. Uh, I'm sure if you. I don't know, have a friend on Facebook who is pissed about the election. They've shared a thousand articles about it. So you're just going to say if you have a friend on Facebook. <laughs> so if you um, have one friend, you know by now. You know by now. But uh, a lot of, uh, there's been a, a lot of discussion about uh, Clinton losing the election because of the negative impact of identity politics on our culture. And um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a couple people who have said uh, some things publicly in that world and a few pieces that have been written recently about uh, whether or not identity politics is a positive or negative force for uh, political change today, these days. Okay. Um, so it started with an article that actually Neil sent me um, last week. Bernie Sanders, post-election, spoke at the Berkeley Center in Boston. And during that speech, he had uh, some of this to say. So this is from Bernie Sanders in his speech uh, that he gave at the Berkeley Center in Boston. Quote, the working class of this country is being decimated, and that's why Donald Trump won. And what we need now are candidates who stand with those working people who understand that real median family income has gone down. It's not good enough for somebody to say, I'm a woman, vote for me. That is not good enough. What we need is a woman who has the guts to stand up to Wall Street, to the insurance companies, to the drug companies, to the fossil fuel industries, end quote. Shame. 
Yeah, and so what he's essentially saying in that is that um, that we are paying attention too much to um, I'm a woman, vote for me. I'm Latino, vote for me. I am queer, vote for me. And uh, that the reason that the Democrats lost is because they lean too heavily on those sorts of identity politic um, strategies, I guess would be the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. And didn't wasn't listening to the working class, the working people. To be fair, at least, though, like the sentiment does seem to be true. Well, OK, so the sentiment is at least consistent on his part because he didn't he didn't talk about his Jewishness during his campaign. Uh-huh. Like he didn't talk about that background. He, he focused so much on policy and, and all those other things. So to be fair, at least he's consistent mm-hmm. in that regard. And at least this isn't something that's like coming out of nowhere. Like what the hell, Bernie Sanders? So, yeah. I mean, props to you, Bernie Sanders, for keeping it 100. But I thought what was interesting about this, and it's a, a place for us to start having a conversation, is, is I've seen this argument reiterated in a lot of other contexts, that the reason Trump won is because too much of the country isn't listening to the quote-unquote working class. That there's this group of people that are being unheard, they're not heard, and they're not being represented, and they're not being spoken to. And it feels like um, there's this narrative that's set up, and which he does in here, that's the working class versus everybody else, mm-hmm. versus like people who are the opposite of that. Um, when it, it seems strange to me that that would be the case, because there are black people, Latino people, queer people, women, in the working class. Well, and I guess I, I, I struggle with the, even the terminology working class because, I mean, if we're really like talking about semantics here, who doesn't work? Like very few people don't actually work. Everybody works and that is a part of their class structure. Boom. Like, like okay, so every class is a working class. I understand like what it means socioeconomically, but it doesn't really mean much with actual substance. And it just like makes me think about how um, back when I studied sociology, um, we, we talked a lot about how um, people tend to identify as middle class and that's really hard to then gauge what middle class actually means mm-hmm. because even people who are on the upper and lower, they want to identify as middle class for a variety of reasons, whether it's because they don't want to look too posh or because they want to feel like they're at a class distinction higher than where they might actually be socioeconomically uh-huh. speaking. So like... What does that even mean? Also, like, black working class issues are different than white working class issues. Like, radically speaking, they're just different. And I, I don't, I, I will say there's something interesting that he has the he has the audacity to say something like this while also making it a huge point to point out how police brutality adversely affects black people and brown people over white people. Like, how can you, how can you condemn identity politics while also using identity politics well because i think he sort of makes a mistake that a lot of white people do make is that in that um that kind of rural working class existence um is imagined only as white people but the the sort of notion is like uh the difficult economically disadvantaged urban experience the one where like people are in the streets dealing with police and it's like gangs and all that they just assume that that is well, that's the black experience. Not necessarily thinking that those two things actually cross each other, and there were people from 
all races in both of those experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's part of the problem with this. Um, when he says the working class of this country is being decimated, it's like it's really what he's saying is the white working class of this country. And the white part is always kept silent. We don't actually say um, that because it's what he's talking about. The working class really does include everybody. And what he's talking about is that we should be paying more attention to the white working class experience. And white is always silent as it so, almost always is in these. Kind if of anything, it's just a different take on identity politics. But. It, if anything, the the focus is on whiteness, yet it's talked about in a generic sense. Because white people are considered not because whiteness default. isn't considered a thing. It's default. Yeah. Well, yeah. White but, people are are wonderful individuals with individual lives and all of that. Right. But what I'm saying is that like it's it's really just another form of identity politics, mm-hmm. just without saying it. Which I mean, come on, y'all, critical thinking skills. Put one and one together. And I feel like, too, it also places the feelings and values of that, like, white working class over the feelings of other groups. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel we have, um, and I feel this a lot in, in the queer experience and politically as well, is that we have often been asked, and I think marginalized and minority groups are often asked to meet the majority group where they are. Instead of the other way around. It's assimilationist. Yeah. They're always says, you know, we have to like, no, make, you got to make room for the people who disagree with you. You have to like make room for the white people who think that, um, that, that every other minority is, is terrible. Like you got to make room for your racist white friends. Um, even though institutionally and systematically, that's what those groups are forced to do all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it. Like the perpetuation for that coded, let's for the the code language of like, let's find out what we have in common. Let's focus on what we have in common is really just the language of hush up. Don't rock the boat. Mm -hmm. Hush up. Continue to allow this, these systems that discriminate against you to perpetuate. And you know, like it, it just, it strikes me as odd that people don't see the value in a group of people who have much more in common than a larger group of people coming together and saying, what are the problems our community faces? Like that's the reason state and local governments exist. It's really just like a slightly more applied form of, of that kind of logic where it's like these, like, like these people know what these people need. Mm. So maybe we should listen to them and see what their needs are and how they're different from ours and see if there's a way that we can meet both of our needs. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it, it just, it, it it boggles my mind that people don't make those connections um, because that just seems so obvious to me. It just seems so like, of course, of, of course, black people have very distinct concerns that I don't have. Like, of course, of course, straight people have concerns that I don't have. Like, of course, because I'm not that. So I wouldn't have those concerns. So why am I weighing in on this? Yeah. You know, so. That little quote from Bernie Sanders was echoed more in detail in a much discussed and very much written about piece in the New York Times by a writer named Mark Lila or Lila Lila. I think Lila. I actually read this um, completely separate to yeah. this podcast and I was going to send it to you, <laughs> but I assumed you already were aware of it. Yeah. So I didn't. It's called The End of Identity Liberalism. And it's basically uh, this. He's a he's an academic. Uh, I think he's a professor at Columbia. And he is. He is at Columbia. Okay. 
And it's condemning identity politics as a central downfall for Clinton's candidacy. So here's a quote from that piece. Quote, but when it came to life at home, she tended on the campaign trail to lose that large vision and slip into the rhetoric of diversity, calling out explicitly to African-American, Latino, LGBT, and women voters at every stop. This was a, st a strategic mistake. If you were going to mention groups in America, you had better mention all of them. If you don't, those left out will notice and feel excluded, which, as data shows, was exactly what happened with the white working class and those with strong religious convictions. Fully two-thirds of white voters without college degrees voted for Donald Trump, as did over 80% of white evangelicals. End quote. So, like, is she just in the middle of her speech just supposed to be, like, and all you honkies out there. <laughs> well, All like, you cracker-ass motherfuckers. Yeah, but, like, like and it's this, his piece... It's it's an attitude that I have seen mirrored in a lot of people's discussion post-election, too. This idea that if you're going to, like, quote, if you're going to mention groups in America, you'd better mention all of them. If you don't, those left out will notice and feel excluded. Mm -hmm. It's really troubling to me that he would write this piece and say, hold on, we have to not leave out white religious people. When the culture, like the entire history of our country has systematically left out other groups and made them feel excluded and didn't include them or mention them well and still failed to do so the thing that i noticed is that um the thing i noticed post-election seeing and interacting with um people's uh facebook threads specifically like people i know from home interacting with people that they know that i've never met um something i've noticed is that and this is a very specific instance that i'm talking about but Straight white guys hate being called straight white guys. Mm. Absolutely hate it. And it's funny because there's nothing that I can do in this in this world without existing. Uh, there's nothing I can do that doesn't feel like I'm not an other. So, like, I can't turn on TV and watch a thing and not feel othered. Because, I mean, we're talking about a heteronormative um, uh, society. So, unless I actively seek out... Um, moments of queer culture, I'm going to feel othered. Um, and my experience is actually in regards to otherness is like much less drastic as some other people. So like the minute that you, you give somebody a little tiny taste of how you experience the world, suddenly they're just like, whoa, 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 no, don't do that. And it's like, honey, the world does this to me every day. Like I'm doing it to you just right now to mention the fact that there is a difference between us, a fundamental difference between us. And yet here you are getting offended by me calling out something that's very obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's something that I, I just very passively experience every day. Um, and I just think that's, that's so interesting. And like, I, I, I made sure after I read this article to look him up, of course he's a white dude. Of course he is. Of course he's a white dude. And it's like, you don't get to say that. When you're a white dude, like you just don't, um, because like, it's so easy. It's so easy for you to say, well, this is the reason why. And, and these, this is hurting, um, identity politics is hurting because we're not talking about the larger group. Like it's because your group very specifically has always been the larger group, whether or not it actually is or not like white male is default. So everything has pandered to you up until this point. So the fact that something isn't pandering to you doesn't mean it's hurtful. Well, it's even, I don't think necessarily so much as like pandering, but, but what I think a lot of people who live in, um, who are like living that white cis 
hetero experience, what they don't understand, what, when they, what they see is people standing up and saying, well, this is my identity and this is who I am. And I'm going to make choices based on that identity. And I'm asking for some space. What they don't understand because they don't experience that is that the, for those of us who live in these othered groups, our lives are dictated by those othered things. We feel those identities all the time. We're not making them. We're not standing up and creating those things. We are responding to the way that we're treated by the culture and the systems and other people in it. So I, people, I think, I feel are but they're what they're bothered by is they feel like this. There's this sense of like, well, queer people are standing up and making a queer identity, quote unquote. Well, we're not doing that. We're responding. We're trying to turn the negative queer identity, which is forced upon us by the way that we're othered by by the culture at large, into something that is positive and making positive space for it. We're because like I mean, we would not be if nobody gave a damn and didn't discriminate against queer people. Our queerness would be pretty much irrelevant. Well, yeah, and and if nobody gave a damn and nobody, um, like, yeah, we wouldn't feel othered at all. We wouldn't like, feel othered. at all whatsoever. There would be nothing like there would be nothing abnormal about our relationship. There would be, um, I wouldn't feel like years and years and years of internalized oppression from my history, like coming back at me, like that wouldn't exist because, yeah. So like, what what would queerness look like? In a, in a world where queerness wasn't oppressed. And so identity politics comes from the fact that there is there is a dominant culture. There is an unmarginalized culture that marginalizes other people. It's like, you did this to us? You did it to us. And, so... now, and then when, when, you are, when you're given a small taste of what that experience is like, when they are... When like they sort of see themselves as individuals, I think guys like people who write these things like Mark Lila and other people who are advocating that, well, let's just, you know, let's abandon identity politics. We should be about what we have in common and not what separates us. It's because they go through the world never having those identity markers either noticed, paid attention to, and they're not responded to and treated based on those things. He's just treated as an individual person. Yeah, like those mask for mask gays who are yeah. like, um, who are like, oh, those are the kind of gays that give us a bad name. And it's like, girl. Because let's be honest, being a white straight guy is an identity. You, the culture just doesn't treat you that way. Mm. Nobody's treating you like a white gay until now. Now they're like, hey, white, we have a problem with white gay guys and the way white gay guys behave. Mm -hmm. And now they're all like, oh, clutch my pearls. My goodness. How dare you say that about me? How dare I'm, a, I'm an individual. I'm a free thinking person. How dare you say I'm culturally appropriative, hunty? Yeah, like they're really freaking because this is finally the moment when they're beginning to exist in the world. And experience what it's like to be on this side. And mm -hmm. we only have this side because of those identities and those like larger groups that have just been given preferential treatment by the systems that govern us. We learned it from watching you, yeah. okay? Here's a little bit more from Mr. Lila's New York Times piece, The End of Identity Liberalism. Um, quote, but how should this diversity shape our politics? The standard liberal answer for nearly a generation now has been that we should become aware of and celebrate our differences, which is a splendid principle of moral pedagogy, but disastrous as a foundation for democratic politics in our ideological age. In recent years, American liberalism has slipped into a kind of moral panic about racial, gender, and sexual identity that has distorted liberalism's message and prevented it from becoming a unifying force capable of governing, end quote. Really, girl? Right. Like, I have, I have, 
I have a problem with this. Um, finger wagging in the air. I have a problem with this. Like the, it's very troubling to see really intelligent people. I mean, he's a professor. He's an educated dude. He's smart. He's engaged in the world. He li- he lives in the world. To sort of diminish the whole, all the movements of you know, like the civil rights movement to take the queer rights movement and all of those things and diminish them to just quote unquote moral panic. That we're just freaking out. And it's to me, it's the same argument when people are like, oh, everybody gets so offended by everything. I'm so tired of the culture of offense, of being offended. Um, it, it's not. It, like, well, the same people freaked out over solid red Starbucks cups last year. And that's so. very true. Yeah. Like, um, clearly, they're offended, too. You know, like, I think that, I feel like that what, what, is, what is sort of, made fun of about identity politics or right now is being said is the negative about identity politics is actually a thing that we really need to do because what identity politics is really just saying is that if you belong to some group of people that isn't the that central privileged group that you just deserve space Mm -hmm. you deserve space and equal treatment the systems shouldn't treat you differently just because you're insert insert group here and if anything it, it just kind of um if anything it goes deeper than that because not everybody in that group has the same experience either mm-hmm. so like when we're especially talking about things like class and queerness um people in different racial groups experience that very very differently so like it, it's like trying to talk about white privilege to your poor white friends like you you still have it it just looks different for you than it does for me like i, I think about our childhoods I was much more privileged than you. Just mm-hmm. I was. Yes. And so like as a result, um, my form of privilege looked different to me than it did to you. And yet you still had white privilege. Mm-hmm. Like you still had it. And and it was with you. And you still had other kinds of privilege. And they were with you. Um, but I understand why it's hard to look at somebody like me and somebody like you and say, well, if, if white privilege is a thing, why doesn't he have the same things as he, as the other guy? Um, and it's just... It's because there's intersectionality, people. It's yeah. intersectionality. So, like, um, so the idea is that, like, like, um, it's not to say like all black people experience this or anything like that, because that's not the case at all. But it's like a lot of them do, and they connect on that reason. And there are lots of other things that they connect on as well, other experiences, and like that. That's like okay. So, like, talking about queerness, I feel like the one thing that is universal to all people that are queer no matter what they are on the spectrum wherever they fall it's the closet like the idea that you're supposed to fit into one thing but you identify otherwise that's something that every single queer person goes through there's always a coming out period there's always even in the even in daily life like when people think that you're my dad (laughs) like like that that that's a coming out moment like it, it is it just straight up is um and that's something that all of us can connect to so even if there are people who are black, who are queer, who experience things radically differently than we do, we still have that little thing mm-hmm. that's like, okay, girl. Like, okay, mm-hmm. girl. Yeah. And I, I'm, I, I feel really un- uncomfortable with the idea that we have, that the assumption of a political approach that is unifying. When we talk, when, when I hear people talk about, we have to be unified now. We have to take a unified approach to governing or a unified political stance. 
it is always marginalized groups assimilating into the mainstream dominant culture. Mm -hmm. It's always queer people having to somehow subvert their queerness or to make their queerness palatable for straight people. It's people of color having to adopt behaviors that will make them palatable for white people. Well, and that's why people like Milo Yiannopoulos or however the hell you pronounce his last name Mm -hmm. is so palatable to neo-Nazis because he literally looks and acts like one. He looks and acts like one. Yeah. And I, you know, the, the, this notion that that's the only way to have a unified political culture is very offensive. That's gross. Why can't white people just get with the fucking program and this stop is a being racist? Podcast. No, no, you know what I mean. Like, why is it never the other way around? It's never like, oh no, we really need to make sure that straight people just get with it and shut the fuck up about queer people. No, no, no. It's always the other way around. We have to behave a certain way in terms of being married or we have to like tone down our queerness or, you know, nah, please don't be too weird and genderqueer and uh, confuse the way that we sort of see gender in the world. Um, and like that's what identity politics is set out, attempts to do. It says, no, there's space for everybody. The thing that just needs to happen is you need to just chill out and mind your own damn business mm-hmm. and recognize that um, the only thing... There, quote unquote, is no difference. There's there's a ton of difference among us all. But those differences can exist side by side without anybody being penalized for them. You said penal. I did. Yeah, but not, you know. Nah. So um, we're not just going to let Mr. Mark Lila's piece stand as the only word on this. So Damon Young, who writes for VerySmartBrothers.com. And if you do not read Very Smart Brothers, I recommend you go and read them every day now. Then you are not a Very Smart Brother. They, uh, It is an amazingly fun site. He wrote a response piece to Mark Lila's piece, and it was called... Mark Lilla's piece, The End of Identity Liberalism, is the whitest thing I've ever read. (laughs) (laughs) And it's magical. And he breaks down the problem with particularly one quote that, that I read earlier where he talks about the rhetoric of diversity. And this is Damon Young from Very Smart Brothers. Um, quote, The wrongness of Lila's premise is centered in a very specific type of white male myopia that, because he's an academic, he believes himself immune to. Although he rails against the bubble, he's a product of it. The concept of diversity, of wanting it recognized, acknowledged, and appreciated, isn't just some sort of classroom rhetoric or academic thought exercise. The recognition of and sensitivity to it is vital because it literally saves lives. For tens of millions of historically marginalized Americans, this isn't about being right or wrong. It's about safety. It's about being able to relax and exhale in our own home. It's about a pursuit of the most basic human need, one that, for as long as America has existed, has been beyond our grasp. End quote. That is a very smart brother. He is a very smart... <laughs> yes. And no, I, I totally identify with the sentiment of the bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember reading all of this very radical theory when I was in grad school, and like even just knowing and meeting with other radical folks who are in academia and like, I just, I don't understand the cognitive distance that one has to have to be like, I'm a radical while they're like getting a paycheck from a state institution Mm -hmm. like that. And like writing research papers on whatever the hell they're writing on. I don't understand how somebody can be like, I'm a radical while also contributing to an inaccessible institution Mm -hmm. by taking up space there. Like, I just, I don't understand how that works, 
I don't understand how somebody can like write and publish and teach and be a professor and do all that and not see themselves as contributing somehow to some, to something like that's not how systems work. Mm -hmm. Like that's not how ethics work. That's not how, like if you buy homophobic chicken from Chick-fil-A, like, sure, you can say you're not homophobic, but your paycheck does pay a homophobic person. That's not necessarily true these days because there's been leadership changes, blah, blah, blah. You can read all about that. But I'm just using it as an example. Like, you can go ahead and use your business. It's, it's like people who voted for Trump saying they're not yeah. racist. Right. Like, you can go ahead and say that, but at the end of the day, your vote went to a racist. Yes. So Who's installing racist in the government? So like, and... like, if we're looking at the scales of intent versus impact, like... Yeah. Your intent might be non-racist, and yet here's your very racist impact. It's like that that a wonderful piece. Um, that was it was like the Cinemax metaphor for the vote, like uh, you know, the, the voting for Trump, but saying that you're not a racist was like um, getting uh, subscribing to HBO because you want HBO, but you get a free Cinemax subscription as part of that. Um, and saying that you're not subscribed to Cinemax, like girl, you you are also subscribed to Cinemax. That is a true thing. Yes, you only intended to get HBO. But you still can watch Cinemax too, and that's—I mean, well, I don't know. Other than the softcore porn, I don't know why anybody would watch Cinemax. But <laughs> no, not jamming on you, Cinemax. But uh, that's—it's the same thing. You can say that you voted for Trump for a number of other reasons and pretend like the racism doesn't count, but you still voted for him, and the racism is there. You bought that too. That's part of the package. Yeah, it's like I always throw out the grapes in my little box that I buy. I don't buy it. I get it for free. But like I I get them. Like you got I, the grapes. I can't do anything about it. Yeah. You get the grapes. And I really love that um that well and also Damon Young in the piece totally calls out this this like privilege, the bubble privilege that he has cuz in in Mark Lila's piece he talks about um spending a year or two years sabbatical in France and doing this thought experiment where I will only read European publications. That asshole. Um, and, <laughs> and it's really funny because um Damon Young will quotes the piece in the in the piece and then responds throughout the thing and his response to that is basically just all caps shut the fuck up. <laughs> Which is amazing, um, but what I really, what what I I really like about it, his his is his uh, calling attention to the fact that identity politics, while to people who are not needing it, just it feels it feels like an inconvenience that we have to listen to Black Lives Matter, and it's oh it's such an inconvenience to have queer people be in comic books and in movies. It does literally save the lives of the people that that are be that are fighting for those spaces lives are literally being saved in the mark lila piece he talks about how awesome reagan was and clinton was you know like they were great unifiers they spoke to everyone um how many people died of aids because of ronald reagan not paying attention to the lives of gay people mm-hmm. how many people are now in prison because of clinton's ho- bill clinton's horrible Dr- uh, war on drugs policies. That's a very convenient thing to forget while writing your little piece for the New York Times and getting your paycheck. Yeah, That's like a very convenient. You know, thing. The, and and for, to anyone who has said, you know, let's just wait and see because hey, we survived Reagan. Well, a lot of people didn't survive Reagan. A lot of people didn't. Twenty eight thousand some odd. <laughs> you know, and and so this, it is. I think it's incredibly important for us to continue participating in identity politics and making a big deal about our various identities. And then on top of that, 
it is incredibly important for those of us who do have marginalized identities, but also live intersectionally in some privileged spaces. Like we are great, great examples. We're queer, but we're white guys. You're white. Yes. Oh my God. I know. Um, I know. Uh, it's important for us to recognize the places where we do have privilege and work to and work use that privilege to work against that privilege i guess is the best way to put it like we just can't be focused on queerness we have to be thinking about about race and uh, systematic and institutional racism we have to be thinking about misogyny we have to think about transphobia we have to think about all of those things and work to end all of them because even though they're not our particular struggle, justice for everybody is is the goal. Get it, Martin Luther. Well, no. I mean, Get it. Don't compare me to Martin Luther. Well, Martin Luther King, King Jr. Right, Martin Luther. What did Martin totally Luther King Sr. ever do? I'm sure he was a preacher, wasn't he? We'll figure that out next time I'm here to free. So... So yeah, I definitely if you have not ever checked out verysmartbrothers.com, you absolutely should. It's a fantastic. Their writing is really really fantastic. And you should grab a little piece of Mark Lila's uh, New York Times uh, article or not. No, you should read it. I mean, you should go read it. You should really go read it and be aware of, of you what You should read writing. it and then watch what's his name on Very Smart Brothers read it. Yes. That's a Correct. different form of the word read. Absolutely. Yeah. No. So anything else you want to say about identity politics? Butt stuff. <laughs> well, that's what kind of identity politics is that? <laughs> Actually, it's um, I, the preferred term is faggot American. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I like Hello, that. Hello. We are from the <laughs> faggot clan. <laughs> We're I, all Muppets now I'm for pretty, some reason. I'm totally down being a faggot American. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that way we can be dash Americans. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, take that, Bobby Jindal. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> wow. All right. Because he was all like the dash Americans should assimilate. Yes. No, I totally agree. Yeah, faggot Americans. I'm down with that. Okay, we're I'm gonna down shake with hands now. now. We Mine... did that very gaily. Yes. Well, I did it very gaily. Yeah, it was lovely. Oh, our time. So. As always, we really appreciate all the support that you're giving us. Um, we would love for you to, if you have not yet, subscribe to the podcast by going over to iTunes. You can also get us on Android, too. Uh, Whoa! Subscribe. Accessibility! Yeah. You can find us. Uh, please review the podcast or leave us some stars. It uh, It's good to sort of hear feedback from all of you about uh, whether or not you like what we're doing, uh, We especially if you like what we're doing. Um, you can also find us on Facebook at Bearded Fruit, and you can find us on the web at www.beardedfruit.com. Um, and we will talk to you next week. What if we actually use that hourglass to time our episodes? I don't know. And when the last grains of sand were done, we're just like, well, gotta hit the space bar. No more recording. Bloop. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> but thanks, though. All right. We'll see you next week.